We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 56 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. Cinco de Mayo. A happy Cinco de Mayo to you and yours. I love Cinco de Mayo for many reasons. First of all, Cinco de Mayo is a great song by a band called War. Not sure if War stands for Wins Above Replacement, but anyway, War, Cinco de Mayo, 1980 song, was before my time, but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate the song. Here's a snippet for your enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, how do you not move when you hear that song? Of course, Cinco de Mayo is an unofficial start to the weather getting warmer, people hanging out outside, partying outside, cervezas, mojitos, whatever you like. But the best part about Cinco de Mayo, and this always cracks me up, and those of you who are Mexican or at least in tune with Mexican culture certainly know this, but Cinco de Mayo has nothing to do with the United States. And yet, and yet, Cinco de Mayo is a much bigger deal in the United States than Cinco de Mayo is in Mexico. Cinco de Mayo, in case you don't know, is in honor of the Mexican army's victory over the French Empire at the Battle of Puebla, May 5th, 1862. I read to you from Wikipedia, quote, the victory of the smaller Mexican force against a larger French force was a boost to morale for the Mexicans. A year after the battle, a larger French force defeated the Mexican army at the Second Battle of Puebla, and Mexico City soon fell to the invaders, end quote. So, Mexico won the initial battle, 
but the French won the rematch. So Cinco de Mayo is in honor of something that A, has nothing to do with the U.S., and B, ended up not meaning that much because the French won the second battle of Puebla. And yet we, us gringos, celebrate Cinco de Mayo like it's our job. But you know what? That's okay. We could all use some more celebrating these days. So enjoy your Cinco de Mayo. Big guest on the show for you on this Cinco de Mayo, NFL draft analyst Tony Pauline of Pro Football Network. Tony is great, has an incredible knowledge of all of these draft picks, has come on with me for years to talk Washington football team drafts, and he's going to give us his takes on all 10 of Washington's picks. I'll give you a spoiler alert. He likes Washington's draft. A lot, especially the Deami Brown and Derek Forrest picks. I had on another prominent NFL draft analyst, Thor Nystrom of NBC Sports Edge on Monday's show, episode 54. He actually gave Washington's draft a D, even though Thor was like more mixed on Washington's draft than hating on Washington's draft. Well, I'll just tell you this. Tony thinks that Washington had the best draft in the NFC East. So stay tuned for that. I think you're going to like what you end up hearing. Also regarding the Washington football team, Aaron Rodgers. What about it? How would you feel about Washington trading for the disgruntled Green Bay Packers quarterback? What if I told you that ESPN's best NFL writer has come up with a realistic trade that Washington, in theory, could make for Rodgers? A trade that was ranked as the second most attractive trade offer for Rodgers. We're going to explore that momentarily. Tom Wilson is free. Incredibly, he was not suspended by the NHL on Tuesday. As a lifelong Capitals fan, I'll take that, but I cannot get over that. We'll talk about that on the show, as well as losses for the Nationals and Orioles on Tuesday night, although Juan Soto is back for the Nats. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Still getting lots of feedback on Washington's draft. Email from Frank in Ashburn. Can anyone seriously argue that our team or any team was solely focused on BPA, i.e. best player available? Really, a long snapper was the best player available there? Come on. All coaches, including Rivera, draft for need all the time. They just don't like admitting that. You just can't reach too far for a need. Tweet from peer-reviewed tweets. You can say many good things about WFT's draft, but every pick, was a position of need. There's no way their draft strategy was BPA. Uh, I've seen and heard a lot of this, that Washington's draft very clearly was a draft for need as opposed to a draft that was done as I like my drafts to be done, and that is BPA, best player available. I think you get into a lot of trouble when you draft on need because needs are ever-changing. What you want to do is load up on a bunch of good players That's how you do your draft. Today's position area of strength is tomorrow's position area of need. Things change all the time. Free agency is for need. Drafting, to me, is for BPA. Now, if you tell me that Washington's 2021 draft was done more with need as the driving force than BPA as the driving force, I would say to you this. You may well be right, But with the exception of the long snapper who was taken in the sixth round, Cameron Cheeseman of Michigan, and I still can't stand that pick, but whatever, it's not the end of the world. Every pick in the draft otherwise for Washington, you very much could argue, was BPA and not a selection predicated on need. I get a kick out of the people who say, well, they addressed all the positions of need. They addressed the positions you would have thought the team would address in the draft. 
I love it that people keep saying, well, of course Washington's draft was driven by need. I mean, how else can you look at it? Washington needed a linebacker, got a linebacker. Needed a left tackle, got a left tackle. Needed help at corner, got a corner. Needed help at receiver, got a receiver. Needed help at tight end, got a tight end. And I hear all that, and I'm like, are you listening to yourself as you say that? Every position group on Washington, on offense and defense, is a position group of need, with the exception, I would say, of the interior of the defensive line. So how can you tell? that Washington was drafting by a need. Every position group, literally, with the exception of one, interior on the defensive line, on offense and defense, was a position group of need. Washington isn't set at any position. Quarterback, offensive line, receiver, tight end, running back, edge rusher, linebacker, corner, safety, all of them, you could argue, were position areas of need going into the draft. So how do you know? Like, you might be right that Washington drafted more out of need than BPA, but I'm not using who Washington took as proof of that. The only need pick clearly was the Cameron Cheeseman pick. Every other pick you could say was best player available. Remember, Ron Rivera said last Thursday night at a Zoom press conference after Washington took Jamin Davis, the Kentucky linebacker at number 19 overall, that Davis was the number one defensive player on Washington's draft board. Now, it's still unclear. Did Don Ron mean that Jamin Davis was the number one overall defensive player on the board going into the draft, or just that Jamin Davis was the number one defensive player on the board at the time that the 19 overall pick came up for Washington? We don't know, but that was an indication that that was a BPA pick, not just a pick of need. But again, every freaking position on the team on offense and defense is a position of need with the exception of the interior of the defensive line. So you people saying that Washington very clearly drafted at a need as opposed to BPA, again, you might be right. I'm not saying you're wrong, but don't use the positions that were addressed by Washington in the 2021 draft as proof of that. So one of my favorite NFL writers is Bill Barnwell of ESPN. Bill Barnwell, to me, is smart. He's thorough. He understands analytics. I always try to read what Bill Barnwell writes. And Barnwell on Tuesday came out with an article for ESPN Plus, the headline, Aaron Rodgers trade offers seven NFL teams and proposals ranked from least appealing to most attractive. And so the article consists of seven hypothetical trade offers from teams to the Green Bay Packers for Aaron Rodgers. The most attractive hypothetical trade offer from Barnwell for Rodgers comes from the Denver Broncos. Barnwell has the Broncos trading quarterback Drew Locke, corner Patrick Sertan II, who the Broncos just took with the number nine pick in the 2021 draft, receiver Tim Patrick, and two first-round picks, those in 2022 and 2023, to the Packers for Rodgers and corner Eric Stokes. The second most attractive hypothetical trade offer from Barnwell for Rodgers comes from, yes, the Washington football team. Listen to this deal. Would you, as a Washington fan, do this deal? Barnwell has Washington trading Ryan Fitzpatrick, Matt Ioannidis, two first-round draft picks, those in 2022 and 2023, and two second-round draft picks, 2022 and 2023, to the Packers for Rodgers. And just Rodgers, nothing else. So Fitzmagic, Ioannidis, two first-round picks, and two second-round picks for A-Rod. Should Washington do that trade? Would you do that trade? So I am someone who values draft picks a lot. I do. I'm not a big believer in just trading away draft picks left and right willy-nilly. I am a fan of neither willy nor nilly when it comes to draft picks. But I tell you what, for Rodgers, I would make the exception. 
I would do that trade. Now, the caveat would be exactly what I laid out in episode 51 of the podcast. I would have to have assurance that Rodgers was all in on coming to and playing for the Washington football team. I would have to have assurance that Rodgers isn't going to be a jerk, that Rodgers isn't going to pout, that Rodgers is not going to have the boo-boo face during his time with Washington. I'd have to know that Rodgers was good contractually, or at the very least that I could negotiate something with him to where he's good contractually. But yeah, I would do that trade. Fitzmagic, Ionitis, two ones, two twos for Rodgers. I would do that. And you might not have to do anything contractually with Rodgers. I know the contract stuff has come up and maybe it is a big issue. I always tend to think with these things, money is always at least part of the issue. We learned that with Trent Williams, but Rodgers is under contract through the 2023 season. He, in August 2018, signed a four-year, $134 million contract extension with about $79 million fully guaranteed at signing. So he is under contract through the 2023 season. He is under contract for each of the next three years. It is conceivable you wouldn't have to do anything contractually. Now, the thing with Rodgers right now is that from an AAV standpoint, average annual value, he is only tied for fifth in the NFL among quarterbacks. And he's tied with Jared Goff, $33.5 million per year. Like you look at the top AAVs for quarterbacks right now, Patrick Mahomes is number one at $45 million. Dak Prescott, number two at $40 million. Deshaun Watson, number three, $39 million. Russell Wilson, number four, $35 million. So if you're Aaron Rodgers and you're a future Hall of Famer, you're if not the best quarterback in the sport, then, you know, top two, top three at worst, and you're tied for fifth with, again, Goff, yeah, you may have to do something if you're Rodgers' next team or current team contractually for the guy. But no, he is under contract for the next three seasons. But whatever the case, if you told me that Aaron Rodgers was going to be happy coming here, was going to be happy playing for Washington and that the contract stuff would be worked out. Aaron Rodgers makes Washington a Super Bowl contender. Yes, Washington with Aaron Rodgers is a Super Bowl contender. For the first time in 30 years, we are talking about Washington as a legitimate contender for the Super Bowl if Aaron Rodgers is here. And realistically, you're a Super Bowl contender for multiple seasons. Because if it was just for one season, I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Fitzpatrick, I-9 is two ones, two twos for a one-year rental of Aaron Rodgers. But because you'd have him for, in theory, at least three seasons, maybe more. And because in this day and age, we're seeing quarterbacks redefine the aging curve. Yes, Rodgers is going into his age 38 season, but he's coming off statistically the best season of his career. And we are seeing with Tom Brady, Drew Brees, and Fitzpatrick, actually, guys playing so well deep into their 30s, if not their 40s. I'm not that concerned about where Rodgers is from an aging standpoint, especially when you also factor in, it's not like there's some substantial injury history with Aaron Rodgers. He's a mobile guy too. So guys who are athletic tend to age better than guys who are not. Aaron Rodgers changes the conversation with Washington. That's even with the conversation with Washington having changed with Ron Rivera and the things that have taken place over the last 12 plus months. Aaron Rodgers elevates Washington to a spot in the NFL hierarchy that Washington hasn't sniffed in three decades. And so for that, I am willing to pay the price of Fitzpatrick, Ioannidis, two ones and two twos. I mean, understand Aaron Rodgers last regular season led the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 84.1. QBR is on a scale of 0 to 100. The Washington football team last regular season as a team was 32nd in the NFL, dead last in total QBR per ESPN at 39.7. So Rodgers last year, 84.1. The Washington football team as a team, 39.7. 
0.7. Less than half the QBR that Rodgers generated is what Washington put forth in terms of overall quarterback production last regular season. Again, Aaron Rodgers changes the conversation for the Washington football team were it to trade for him. Now, look, I don't think that Rodgers will be traded. First of all, the Packers don't want to trade him. The team has made that clear. The Packers don't have to trade Rodgers. And there's also this, Rodgers actually doesn't have as much leverage in this situation as you may think. The 2020 collective bargaining agreement made it more difficult for veterans to hold out. This has not been talked about a lot, but you can almost consider this the Trent Williams clause. And I say that only half kiddingly. Like, I think it's possible that what happened between Washington and Trent influenced the 2020 CBA having this. The way it works now is a veteran who holds out can be fined $50,000 per day with no ability for teams to waive those fines if the player returns. Because that was always a thing with guys who would hold out. You'd say, well, the team is finding them X amount, and then the guy would ultimately come back and the team would waive the fines, or at the very least, lessen the fines. The CBA now does not allow for teams to do that. That's no longer an out. You hold out, you can be fined, and you can't have those fines waived. Like, you're going to have to pay those fines. And again, you're talking $50,000 per day. Even if you're a richie rich like Aaron Rodgers, that's real money, fifty grand per day. Also, there's this. If a player is absent without permission for more than five days, he doesn't accrue a season or move any closer toward free agency. So Aaron Rodgers' contract, which again still has three seasons left on it, would toll, would essentially be paused were he to hold out for a substantial period of time. So the Aaron Rodgers leverage in this situation with the Packers is not as sky high as some people may think. Now, this is an ugly situation. Can Rodgers make things uglier? Sure. If you're the Packers, don't you want to have Aaron Rodgers in good graces with you and playing for you? Of course. But the Packers can play hardball if they want to. You know, the Packers can, shall we say, bruise it and not trade Rodgers and just let him bleed away money. We're winning off the field. Yes. Hello, Bruce. As Bruce Allen did with Trent Williams, Brian Gutekunst could do with Aaron Rodgers. Now, I wouldn't recommend that for the Packers. Bruce, of course, cut off Washington's nose despite the team's face in not trading Trent. And then Ron Rivera had to get pennies on the dollar for Trent. But in theory, the Packers could Bruce it and not trade Rodgers. We're winning off the field. Yes, Bruce. How about that, by the way? What if Brucey's bungling of the Trent situation ended up serving as a template for how one of the great franchises in the NFL, the Green Bay Packers, handled the Aaron Rodgers situation? Anyway, I don't like trading away draft picks, but I would do that Bill Barnwell trade, what he ranks as the second most attractive hypothetical trade offer for Aaron Rodgers. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Matt Ioannidis, two first round picks and two second round picks for Rodgers. You tell me what you think. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Speaking of potential major deals, there's probably no bigger deal that you ever have to do than selling your home. It matters who you go with as your real estate agent. Let me tell you why I strongly recommend that you call a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, aka John G. John G is next level. He has unique systems, a list of ready buyers, and the ultimate guarantee. John Grandland promises that if you can't sell your home at your agreed upon price, he will buy your home himself and he will back this up in writing. So working with John Grandland literally guarantees the sale of your home. Also, John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from. So you literally can choose your discount, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. You've heard me talk about this. Zero commission. Some conditions do apply. 
How about what our friends Kelly and Dustin have to say about John G? Quote, John and his team are incredible. They sold our house in less than two days and for asking price. Need I say more? John was professional and personable throughout the entire process. When we interviewed John, we knew he was the realtor for us. Not only was he friendly and personable, but he presented us data and statistics that showed his average days on market for his clients are around a week. Very impressive. End quote. Yes, it is. Here's what to do. Pick up the phone and call John G. now. 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. And make sure you tell John Grandland you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. You want the guaranteed sale of your home. And if you want it, ask for the zero commission package as well. You can check John Grandland out online, johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandland, nobody will do a better job selling your home. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. And now to our special guest. All right, so as we continue to discuss and dissect the Washington football team's 2021 draft class, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, NFL draft analyst Tony Pauline of Pro Football Network. I read a bunch of his evaluations of players throughout the draft process. You can follow him on Twitter at Tony Pauline. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. Always love getting your insight into what Washington does in the draft. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on. So generally speaking, did you like Washington's 2021 draft class? Yeah, I think it was strong at the top. I think day three, they got a, a lot of good developmental players. I think they added depth. I think they filled needs. There's no quarterback in this class, which I, I thought at one point in time they may have taken a signal caller. But overall, I think it's a good class. So as you said, Washington did not take a quarterback, including not trading up to take Justin Fields or Mac Jones. I know that you reported that Washington had shown at least some interest in trading up. Was not trading up a mistake? Well, I don't think they wanted to pay the price that uh, that the Bears paid to move up to get Justin Fields. I, probably a situation with Mac Jones where they feel he wasn't a good fit for that system. I don't know that they were going to be able to trade up really uh, for Mac Jones. The I think when the chart when Rashawn Slater fell to the Chargers at thirteen, then the Jets really were hell bent to move up to fourteen because they wanted Elijah Vera Tucker. And then you got the Patriots sitting there. So I, I don't know what opportunities would have been available to them unless they gave away a ton of picks, which I don't think when you are a Washington, the state that you're in, you've got so many uh, needs, you really want to be giving away future selections. Yeah, and that's certainly how Ron Rivera framed things publicly. One more on the quarterbacks. Washington also passed on the second-tier quarterbacks, Kyle Trask, Kellen Bond, Davis Mills. Where are you on those guys? Well, I knew all along that they liked Davis Mills, but Davis Mills had a lot of medical red flags entering uh, the draft that may have scared him away. I thought it would have been a good pick, but I'm sure that they were looking at those medical red flags, plus the fact that he's going to need a lot of development, and they uh, they moved away from him. I had Kyle Trask going to uh, the Buccaneers all along. Again, I don't know that it's a good system fit. Kellerman was was an interesting one. I think he would have been a good system fit, but Kellerman needs a lot of work on his game. And I guess that they thought that Sam Cosme round two uh, was more of a pressing need and he's more NFL ready. All right, so let's get to the guys who Washington actually took in the 2021 draft. And I'll ask you about Cosme in a moment. But with the first round pick, the Kentucky linebacker Jamin Davis at number 19. Are you a fan of that pick? You know, with the medical concerns, 
concerns around Ubusu Karmore and the fact that, you know, he really is a safety-sized linebacker that didn't run, I can understand the pick. And, and the fact is, Davis has got terrific size. He's got terrific speed. He's just hitting his stride on the football field. He's got a tremendous amount of upside. Got to learn to make plays moving in reverse a little bit better. He's got to learn uh, coverage a little bit better. But I, I think, you know, the type of defense that Ron Rivera plays, he's going to be able to roam that second level, go sideline to sideline really uh, headhunts the ball carriers against the run. He stacks well against the run, and he's got a good amount of upside. So I understand it. I like the selection. I had Davis slightly uh, rated slightly lower, but I had him as a solid first-round pick. Do you see Jamin Davis as a good three-down linebacker in the NFL, or do you have concerns? I have concerns with his coverage skills at this point in time. I have concerns with his ability to make plays in reverse. I think he's more of a two-down defender at this point in time, but he's got the athleticism that he should be able to transition or eventually develop his game when the ball's in the air. Washington took the Texas offensive tackle Samuel Cosme in the second round. Can he be a quality starting left tackle in the NFL? If he plays to his level of ability on every down, absolutely. But that's the problem with Sam Cosme. That's why he was a late second-round pick rather than a late first-round pick or early second-round choice. Cosby was a guy who, as a sophomore, really stood out. But his play the next two years, I'm sorry, as a redshirt freshman, but his play the next really stood out. But I, I basically saw his play level off the next two years. I really never uh, took the next step in his game. He's a guy that seems to turn it on and off when he wants to. But he's tall. He's athletic. He's a terrific left-tackle prospect. It's just a matter of him being plugged in and playing at a high level or to the level of his ability on every down and taking his game to the next level and, and maybe occasionally needing a boot in the rear end. In your experience, guys who aren't always plugged in, can that be changed or are you essentially who you are? And if you're like that in college, you're probably going to be like that in the NFL. Yeah, it, it's probably the latter. I, I, I mean, it, it can be tough, but sometimes the light goes on and sometimes, you know, Rivera is a player's coach. And oftentimes, that's all it's needed to really flip that switch, you know, uh, and take it to the next level. Was it wasn't a great situation at Texas the past two years? The coach lost his job at the end of the year. Uh, I think if there's anyone that can get Cosby really to elevate his game and play at a level that he's capable of, it would be somebody like Ron Rivera. Talking Washington football team draft with NFL draft analyst Tony Pauline of Pro Football Network. So Washington spent the first of his two third-round picks on the Minnesota corner, Benjamin Sejus. Not an overly fast corner, but a bigger corner at 6'3 and a quarter, 202 pounds. I know some felt that this was a reach pick. Did you? No, not really. I had him as a late third, early fourth, so they took him in the middle of the third. I think with Sejus, you really got to go back and watch the 2019 Film when he was used as a full-time corner, and he was good. You could see the makings of a very good player there. Last year, I, I think that I said a couple times that Minnesota kind of misused him. They used him more in a nickel rather than as a press corner, which I think where he's best. Uh, which and the fact is, you know, last season for a lot of players in the Big Ten in the Pac-12 was kind of a funky year. They were playing, they weren't playing, they didn't know when they would start playing, and then when they started playing, it was a week-to-week basis. So, uh, you know, you got to kind of defer and give them the benefit of doubt in many instances. But St. Just is big. He's got terrific corner skills. Like I said, anybody listening, go out there and watch the 2019 film. He's got a good amount of upside. Uh, it's just a matter of getting back to where he was in 2019 and building from that point. Washington spent the second of its two third-round picks on the North Carolina receiver, Deyami Brown. Tremendous production from him 
at UNC the last two seasons. It's interesting with Washington. The team has found an offensive gem in the third round of each of the previous two drafts. Terry McLaurin, 2019, Antonio Gibson in 2020. Could Diami Brown make it three for three? Uh, absolutely. I, I love this kid. I, I mean, I had him as a, pegged as a third rounder, but I think he's more second-round uh, second talent. He's a ter- terrific vertical threat, a real, uh, a real deep threat at receiver, catches the pass down the field very well. Uh, sort of a tall, thinner build, going to have to get stronger, maybe uh, get a little bit uh, tripped up in press coverage, but he's a good pass catcher. He's got to polish his game. Again, really was a good player in 2019, was a better player in 2020. I like him now. I like his upside. It's just a matter of developing him. I thought this was a great pick for Washington. The fourth-round tight end, John Bates of Boise State, probably a number two or number three tight end, or do you see more upside with him than that? Yeah, I always projected him as a number two tight end. I mean, he, he's not the tight end that the that Washington fans are used to in the past. He's not a guy that's going to get down the seam and really create mismatches in the second level. He's a t- tremendous blocker, and he's a good pass catcher, but he's just a short and intermediate pass catching threat. I mean, I, I guess in a run-oriented uh, type offense or a system where you're not going to ask your tight end to get down the field, he could be a number one. He's really good. He's just not super fast. That's the problem with Bates. Good pass catcher, outstanding blocker, but he's not going to win any foot races. Fifth round pick is the Cincinnati safety, Derek Forrest. Washington is talking him up as a special teams guy, but he's an incredible athlete. I mean, could he help out Washington in the secondary, in your opinion? Yeah, he's not only an incredible athlete, he's a real good football player. I, I tweeted out uh, uh, Saturday when he was selected. I, I love this kid. In fact, I had him graded as the fifth rounder, and I was one of the few people that even gave him a draftable grade. When you watch him on film, he was constantly around the ball at Cincinnati, constantly making plays against the pass, and against the run. Now, the thing uh, about him is he ran in the low 4-4s, high 4-3s during his pro day. He really doesn't play that fast. you got to coach him to play to his speed. But he was someone who was omnipresent. He was someone that was physical. He was someone that was intense, instinctive guy. If you get him to play to his athletic numbers, not only do you have a good special teamer, you know, you could have uh, uh, number three, potentially number two safety uh, on Sunday. We arrive now at what Washington did in the sixth round. So Washington did not have a sixth-round pick, made a trade with the Philadelphia Eagles to get a sixth-round pick, and then spent the sixth-round pick on a long snapper, Cameron Cheeseman of Michigan. To me, you should never spend a draft pick on a long snapper, but where are you on that? I guess they figured it was a position of need. They liked uh, the long snapper, but you know what? I mean, we have 859 players. We had 859 players rated at Pro Football Network, and not one was a long snapper. It's just, I, I just, you know, I, I do my punters and kickers last, and I just don't do long snappers. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm sort of in, in your, following along with your mindset, uh, but I guess they like what they saw, and there were a couple of long snappers drafted this year, as there are every year. Washington wound up with three seventh-round picks, spent the first two on edge rushers, William Bradley King of Baylor and Shaka Tony of Penn State. What do you think of those two guys? Yeah, Bradley King is a guy, I, I think I would, I've been waiting for him to bust out, but he really hasn't. Started at Arkansas State, moved to Baylor this year, shows flashes, decent athlete. You know, is a guy that has come out of, come out of a three-point stance successfully, I think he's more of a situational guy. He has some upside. He's got to get a little bit bigger. He's got to get a little bit stronger. I do like him. 
Shaka Tony is a bit of an enigma because if you watch Shaka Tony, there will be one game where he absolutely dominates and the opponents cannot stop him. And he's setting up camp in the opponent's backfield. And then for the next three or four games, he won't produce. He'll have a tackle here or a tackle there. And then he'll come back and have another huge game. So the ability is there for Tony. I like a more standing uh, over tackle than I do coming out of a three-point stance, although I think he can do both. But, I, I mean, it's sort of a situation with, uh, like, Sam Cosby, where he's got to play to his level of ability uh, on an every-down basis. I mean, if you look at Sam, uh, at Shaka Tony at his best throughout his career, even in 2020, and then you match it up with the pro-day workout numbers that he turned in, the guy should have been a day-two pick. But because there's been so much inconsistency, and because he disappears for stretches at a time, that's why he fell into the late rounds. The last of Washington's 10 picks, the BYU receiver Dax Milne, doesn't overwhelm you with his physical gifts, but he certainly was productive for BYU. What do you think about Milne and his prospects at the NFL level? Yeah, as a lot of BYU receivers are, big numbers, solid pass catcher, average size, average speed. You know, he's the type of guy, he may make it as a fifth receiver, but he's really going to have to stand out returning punts this year. He seems to have some good short area quickness. You would assume that that, or you would think that that would translate well to punt returning. That's how he's going to make a roster this year. You know, he's a sure-handed guy, but he's more of an intermediate pass catcher with, you know, average computer numbers. Of the four NFC East teams, which to you had the best draft? I think there's a lot of risk in all of them, but I actually like Washington as the best. When I look at Dallas's picks on the defensive side of the ball, high upside, a lot of risk. You look at the Giants, uh, they took Tony Kadarius Tony in the first round, a guy who's a playmaker, but a guy who I think really benefited from the fact that he played with Kyle Pitts, and if you watch the film, the, fe- the opponents were consistently putting their best defenders, their best secondary players over Kyle Pitts, which opened things up for Tony. And then they take Ojolari in round two, who, if he stays healthy, it'll be the steal of the draft. I love Ojolari, but you don't know if he's going to stay healthy. I think the Eagles, I like Devonta Smith. Uh, you're obviously going to have to protect him and keep him out of press coverage, but I think the rest of the Eagles draft, there was just a lot of risk. I think Washington got good players. They filled needs. And in guys like, you know, even Derek Foster through round five, John Bates, Deami Brown, uh, St. Just, and Davis, they got, they're not, they're not sure things, but there's not much risk there. Cosby, you know, if he play, decides to play, uh, to his level of, uh, of ability, there's not going to be much risk there. So I like what Washington did. I think they're a much better team today than they were a week ago. I think the other teams, the Giants, the Cowboys, and Eagles are better, but we'll have to wait and see, you know, once uh, once these players take the field, as we do with every team with the draft. But I just think there's a lot of risk with those other three teams. One more for you, and I appreciate your time. So we just got through with the 2021 draft. When it comes to the 2022 draft and the quarterback position, Washington obviously still has questions at quarterback long term. We'll see what happens this coming season with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Kyle Allen. It's been said that the 2022 draft is not good at the quarterback position. Do you see next year's draft that way? Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it's, it's not very good. You don't know. I, I mean, how many people thought that Zach Wilson was going to be the second pick of this year's draft? Right. How many people thought that Mac Jones was going to make a, make a move into the middle part of round one? So you just don't know. I mean, you'll have guys. Obviously, you know, it's, it, it, it's a situation for with, with Washington where, 
you know, if they're getting one of the better quarterbacks, it means that they probably won four games last year, five games uh, this coming season. You don't want that. Sam Howell of North Carolina is a good, uh, good quarterback. I love Carson Strong of Nevada. There's a kid coming out of, uh, or may come out of Coastal Carolina who's got big-time ability. I think it may not be as strong at the top, but you'll have some signal calls there. And there are always, there's always somebody that comes out of nowhere. It's just a matter of who is that player right now. He is one of the best, one of the most informed NFL draft analysts. Tony Pauline, Pro Football Network. Love talking draft with you, Tony. All the best to you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The first of the Capitals' four remaining regular season games is on Wednesday night. Caps at the New York Rangers. Wednesday night at 7 in what is the final road game for the Capitals in the regular season. Oh, what might transpire between the Caps and the Rangers off what went down on Monday night and then did not go down on Tuesday. More on all of that in a moment. There were a bunch of games on Monday night relevant to the Caps. The Pittsburgh Penguins won at the Philadelphia Flyers 7-3. The Boston Bruins lost at the New Jersey Devils 4-3 in overtime. The New York Islanders lost at the Buffalo Sabres 4-3 in a shootout. So the Caps now are in second place in the East Division at 71 points, two points behind the Penguins, two points ahead of the Bruins, three points ahead of the Islanders. But the biggest item by far regarding the Caps on Tuesday was what went down with Tom Wilson, or more specifically, what did not go down, as incredibly, he was not suspended by the NHL for what happened on Monday night in that 6-3 Capitals win at the Rangers. Tom Wilson in the game receiving three roughing minors and a 10-minute game misconduct as a brawl-for-all broke out 7:40 into the second period. Massive scuffle. Scuffle included Wilson cross-checking Pavel Buchnevich and slamming and then grounding and pounding Artemi Panarin. Wilson was completely out of control, did end up coming back into the game and had an empty net goal. I mean, he hysterically finished the game with a goal, an assist, and four penalties. That totaled 16 minutes, but I certainly felt like a suspension was coming. We talked about that on Monday's installment of the podcast, especially given Tom Wilson's history, right? Five NHL suspensions for Wilson, all since September 2017. But remarkably, shockingly, the NHL Department of Player Safety on Tuesday morning announced that Wilson had been fined $5,000, the maximum amount allowed by the collective bargaining agreement. But that was it. No suspension. Now, the Rangers, later on Tuesday, issued an ultra-angry statement. And the statement, to me, was a little over the top, okay? Here was the statement, quote, The New York Rangers are extremely disappointed that Capitals for Tom Wilson was not suspended for his horrifying act of violence last night at Madison Square Garden. Wilson is a repeat offender with a long history of these type of acts, and we find it shocking that the NHL and their Department of Player Safety failed to take the appropriate action and suspend him indefinitely. Wilson's dangerous and reckless actions caused an injury to Artemi Panarin that will prevent him from playing again this season. We view this as a dereliction of duty by NHL head of player safety George Paros and believe he is unfit to continue in his current role End quote. So how about that? The Rangers, the old blue shirts, are calling for the guy's job, are calling for the current NHL head of player safety to be fired by the NHL. You almost never see something like that in a statement. Now, a few things with the statement. So the Rangers say that Artemi Panarin will not be able to play the rest of the season. I do need to point this out, and I'm not like trying to laugh at Panarin getting hurt, okay, because it's not funny. But the Rangers, with that loss to the Capitals on Monday night, 
were eliminated from playoff contention. So the Rangers only have three games left in their season. That's it. Okay. So let's, let's calm down a little bit with the Panarin's been lost for the season. Again, it's not good that he's hurt, but the Rangers only have three games left in their season. But how about the Rangers earlier in the statement saying that Wilson, quote, was not suspended for his horrifying act of violence, end quote. I mean, I don't know about that either. Okay horrifying act of violence. I mean, it wasn't a murder, okay? Buchnevich and Panarin weren't Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. It was a hockey fight, okay? Things happen in hockey fights. Wilson was out of control. He should not have done what he did, but horrifying act of violence, like, let's calm down a little bit, all right? But yeah, man, I was stunned that Wilson was not suspended. And as dramatic as the Rangers statement may have been, it makes no sense to me that Wilson wasn't suspended. I mean, consider this. Tom Wilson, this past March, received a seven-game suspension, during which, by the way, the Caps went 7-0-0, for a hard hit for which no penalty was called on Boston Bruins defenseman Brandon Carlo in a 5-1 Caps loss at the Bruins on March 5th. That was, again, the fifth NHL suspension for Wilson, all since September 2017. But if you remember the specifics of the Wilson hit on Carlo, The hit, I mean, it wasn't necessarily great, but it also wasn't that bad. The hit was high, but the hit to me was more to the left shoulder and collarbone of Carlo than to the head, and Wilson didn't launch himself. And what was interesting about the whole sequence is that Jacob Vrana actually then went with a cross-check to the back of Carlo's head slash neck. Nothing happened to Vrana, but Wilson got a seven-game suspension. And I think the clear communication was this has a lot to do with Tom Wilson's history. And so given that precedent, how it is that Wilson got no suspension for what happened on Monday night when he again cross-checked Buchnevich and then slammed and grounded and pounded Panarin, I just find incredible. And I'm not not happy about it. I am happy about it. I'm a lifelong Capitals fan. I want Tom Wilson out there. But fair is fair. Like if you're being objective, if you're removing your fan bias, Tom Wilson should have been suspended for at least some length of time, and that he wasn't is a gift from the hockey gods, if you're a Capitals fan. And I don't blame the Rangers for being angry, as dramatic as their statement was. Tom Wilson has got to be better than this. Tom Wilson has got to be smarter than this. This isn't about, you know, sportsmanship or doing what's right. This is about being available for your team. We're coming up on the Stanley Cup playoffs, and the Capitals have to deal with Tom Wilson potentially being suspended for a totally unnecessary situation. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. You got to be better than that if you're Tom Wilson. You know, the Capitals are as win now as you can get in the NHL. Alex Ovechkin, older. Nicholas Backstrom, older. Bunch of other key veterans on the team. The Caps have made it past the second round just once during this glorious Rock the Red era with Ovechkin and Backstrom. And of course, the one time did result in a Stanley Cup championship 2018. But to me, as a Caps fan, I want more. Okay, I want more. And it doesn't necessarily have to be another cup. Well, that would be lovely. But how about can you just get past the freaking second round more than one time during the entire Ovechkin-Backstrom era? And so if you're going to do that, you're going to need your key horses. And Tom Wilson is a very key horse. Tom Wilson is not some thug enforcer who plays on the fourth line and his only role is to get into fights. Tom Wilson is skilled. There's a reason that his nickname has been Top Line Tom, because he's played on the top line, because he's skilled. He's a key player. The Caps need him, and that the Caps went 7-0-0 without him last March is great, but you tell me, you trust that to happen again come the postseason? No, you want Tom Wilson with you. And, you know, bigger picture, the Capitals, and I know they are winning. I mean, they did win that game 
on Monday night, but Ovechkin with this lower body injury comes back from it, then only skates for one shift, has to leave the game on Monday night. Justin Schultz has missed a lot of time recently with the lower body injury. You had Evgeny Kuznetsov and Ilya Samsonov being suspended for the game on Monday night due to being late to a team function. Tom Wilson nearly got suspended, thankfully did not, but Peter Laviolette's got to get his arms around this, okay, because we are quickly approaching the Stanley Cup playoffs, and the Capitals, off winning the Cup in 2018, have gotten ousted in the first round of the postseason each of the last two years, including being eviscerated by Barry Trotz and the New York Islanders last postseason. Don't forget what happened last year in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Capitals got totally outclassed by the Islanders. Since winning the Cup, the Caps have not won a postseason series. And again, Ovechkin, Backstrom, older players, Caps are a win-now franchise. I want to see them do more than just one advancement past the second round in the Ovechkin-Backstrom Rock the Red era. I think the Caps have a great chance to do that this postseason. There's a lot to like with this Capitals team this season, but they are far from like a total world beater. They are far from immune to being ousted in the first round yet again, especially when you consider the Caps are playing two young goaltenders in Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek. So don't do stupid things. What Wilson did on Monday night was stupid. It was unnecessary. He didn't need to behave that way. Control yourself. The Rangers are going nowhere. Why are you getting yourself involved in something that could have gotten you suspended? Thankfully, did not. One more thing on the Tom Wilson situation. Did you happen to see on Twitter what went on on Tuesday? So Tom Wilson was trending for much of the day because of the outrage over him not being suspended. And, you know, on the right side of the screen, Twitter will have a brief description of the trending topics. And for the longest time, like hours, Twitter had Tom Wilson as being a Flyers right winger, not a Capitals right winger. And I just got a kick out of that because I'm like, I mean, you're Twitter, you know, you're, you're supposed to get these things right. And of all the stuff the last few years of fake news and stuff that isn't true and, you know, Twitter censoring this and preventing that and Twitter being all about, hey, we want factual information and, you know, we don't want disinformation and we're going to suspend your account if you do certain things. And here you have Twitter having Tom Wilson is playing for the Flyers for hours on Tuesday. Now, that's not that big of a deal. I understand that, okay? In terms of misinformation on Twitter, uh, that's very far down the list. But I got a kick out of that of like, man, Twitter just got that totally wrong. And for the longest time, this wasn't like a brief 30-second type screw-up. And of course, there's also the thing of the Flyers, right? Like Tom Wilson fits as that prototypical Philadelphia Flyer, Broad Street bully, etc. Thankfully, he's not a Flyer. Thankfully, he's a Capital. I'm very happy about that. He's one of my favorite Capitals. I just want him to be smarter. The Nationals' four-game winning streak is over, ending on Tuesday night with a pretty bad loss. Just not a lot to like with this loss. Six won the final to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a three-game series. That's fall to 12-13 and 13 off activating both Juan Soto and Will Harris from the 10-day injured list earlier in the day. Uh, the Nats had no solution for this guy, Oscar Inoa, the Braves' starting pitcher, he allowed one run unearned in seven innings, and he had the hit of the game. A two-out grand slam off Tanner Rainey in the top of the six for a 6 nothing Braves lead. How often do you see that? A starting pitcher with not just a home run, but a grand slam off a fresh-armed reliever, by the way. Like Tanner Rainey, that was his first inning of work. He was not pitching well, but he got got by Oscar Inoa, who was all of a sudden Babe Ruth, you know, Shohei Otani in this game on Tuesday night. And then there was the Nationals offense, which was again, basically impotent. The Nats had just five hits, all singles and three walks, struck out 11 times. And the Nats were sloppy in the field 
committing three errors. Now, the big development on Tuesday was Juan Soto being activated off the 10-day IL. That is great news, although there's sort of a caveat to that. So the Nats reinstating Juan Soto from the 10-day IL. He'd been on that since April 20th due to a left shoulder strain. The way things are being depicted, though, Soto is still not good to play the field. And so Soto came off the bench on Tuesday night, and there's a feeling here that Soto is going to do nothing but come off the bench for the Nats in this series against the Braves. Now, the Nats, after this series against the Braves, have a three-game series at the New York Yankees this weekend, i.e. a game in an American League park, i.e. you'll have a DH. So Soto can DH for that series. But it doesn't sound like, at least not yet, that Soto is good to go in terms of throwing and playing the field. So Soto's back, but he's not all the way back. Soto missed 10 games, ultimately, with that stint on the 10-day IL. And that's went 7-3 and three during that stretch. So that's did do a nice job of succeeding without Juan Soto. Soto off the bench as a pinch hitter on Tuesday night, came up with nobody out, a runner on first, and the Nats trailing 6-1 in the top of the eighth and struck out on four pitches. Corresponding roster move to the Nats reinstating Soto from the 10-day IL was them designating Hernan Perez for assignment. So the position player who had not one but two outings as a reliever for the Nationals in blowout losses, he's been DFA'd. Perez had been brutal as a batter over 21 plate appearances, one for 19 with two walks. He had an OPS plus, Hernan Perez did, of minus 42, okay? 100 is league average. Hernan Perez's OPS plus was minus 42. That's about as bad as you could possibly be when you've had at least one hit in a season. Also reinstated off the Nationals 10-day injured list on Tuesday was Will Harris, and he made his regular season debut in this game on Tuesday night, ultimately tossing a scoreless top of the eighth that included back-to-back strikeouts to Christian Pache and a pinch-hitting Pablo Sandoval for the second and third outs, respectively, with runners on first and second. So good to see that from Harris. Harris had not pitched so far this season due to right-hand inflammation, but remember the specifics of the right-hand inflammation that Harris dealt with. So he went through quite the medical scare during spring training. March 13th felt numbness in his fingers while throwing in a B game. March 19th, we're told that Harris has been diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. But Davey Martinez on March 26th revealed that a procedure on Harris had revealed that he had not had a blood clot in his right arm, nor the more serious thoracic outlet syndrome. And in fact, could be back pitching for the Nats soon. Uh, well, he ended up missing the Nats' first 24 games, but he was out there on Tuesday night. He's in his age. 36 season. That signed him in January 2020 to a three-year $24 million contract. Had a mixed 2020, but over the previous five years, 2015 through 2019, prior to coming to the Nats, Harris for the Houston Astros was one of the more consistent relievers in baseball. So good to have him healthy. Nats bullpen has been a strength, but there's no such thing as having too many weapons in your pen. And Harris now is another weapon for the pen. Interestingly, the corresponding roster move to the Nats reinstating Harris from the 10-day IL was them optioning Kyle McGowan to AAA Rochester. Paolo Espino, who has one of the great names you'll ever hear, he stays on the team. Paolo Espino, a guy in his 30s who was summoned from the alternate training side, has stuck with the team, has done a nice job as a reliever, as a spot starter, actually tossed a perfect top of the ninth inning on Tuesday night. And old Paolo, for now, sticking with the ball club. Also on Tuesday night, Austin Voth tossed a perfect top of the seventh. It sounds like the bullpen did a nice job. Uh, well, yeah, those three guys did, talking about Harris, Espino, and Voth. The problem was Tanner Rainey, who was a complete disaster in the top of the sixth inning. He came into the game with a runner on second and one out, got a fly out for the second out, but then issued a two-out intentional walk 
to Dansby Swanson off having fallen behind Swanson 2-0 in the count. So that was one of those plate appearances for a guy where the initial pitches are legit and then the pitching team decides to issue the intentional walk. Then Rainey gave up a two-out RBI single to William Contreras. Then Rainey issued a two-out eight-pitch walk to Kristen Pache to load the bases. And then came the big blow. Rainey giving up a two-out grand slam to the Braves starting pitcher, Uwaskari Noah, for a 6 nothing Braves lead. And especially given the state of the Nats offense, you felt like the Nats were buried at that point. 6 nothing. I mean, you know, you just did not have any faith that the Nats would be coming back. Rainey's struggles continue. You know, at times he's looked like he's coming on But the velocity still is not where you want it to be. Tanner Rainey was an outstanding strikeout pitcher last year. Came into the season with a lot of people, including myself, feeling like he could end up being the Nats' best reliever for the season. It may play out that way. But for now, Tanner Rainey has not been very good, not been very effective. He's not striking guys out. And he gives up a grand slam to the opposing pitcher. I mean, I know we know he's not a bad hitter as a pitcher. But whatever. He's still a pitcher. And he hits a two-out grand slam off you. Now, Nationals offense, like I said, not good. Just five hits the entire game, all singles to go with three walks. Trey Turner did have two of the five hits and one of the three walks. Had a leadoff single in the bottom of the first, a one-out eight-pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth, and a one-out single on a one-two pitch in the bottom of the eighth. Trey was back in that number one spot in the lineup. But also for Trey were two errors at shortstop. And I'm not going to slam Trey because he's actually done a nice job defensively overall so far this year. But some bad throws from Trey Turner on Tuesday night. In that Braves five-run six, Turner with a throwing error on Ozzie Albies, who's went out infield single off playing on the second baseman side, a second base in the shift and making a rush throw of a slow grounder, advancing Albies to second base. And then Turner committed a throwing error on a fairly routine Austin Riley leadoff grounder in the top of the eighth as Turner's throw pulled off Josh Bell from first base and Bell was unable to apply the tag on Riley. Rest of the Nats offense did next to nothing. Yadiel Hernandez, starting right fielder, number two batter, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Josh Harrison, starting second baseman, number three batter, 0 for 3 with a walk. Harrison himself had an error on Tuesday night, a fielding error to begin the top of the third as he off being in the shift on the shortstop side of second base, dropped to Kristen Pache, pop up while running in shallow right field. Josh Bell, again, starting first baseman, again, cleanup batter, 1 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts at a one-out single in the Nats' one-run seventh. Kyle Schwarber, starting left fielder, number five batter, 0 for 4 with an RBI. Now, I mentioned the Nats' three errors. Let me give credit to a very good defensive play by the Nats on Tuesday night. And the play was authored by Victor Robles, who did some kind of job in this moment in the top of the third inning. An outstanding, lunging, backhanded catch on the warning track while running toward the center field wall and falling down on a first pitch liner off the bat of Ronald Acuna Jr. for the second out with a runner on second. That was tremendous. I mean, that was like a five-star play that Victor Robles made. That is not an easy play to make. You know, that's the classic thing of the liner, soaring over your head. Robles is running. He makes the backhanded catch while running toward the wall, tumbles to the warning track. Just an outstanding job there by Victor Robles. Robles was the number eight batter, went 0 for 2 with a walk and a couple of strikeouts. Now, starting pitcher, it was Joe Ross. His final line was good. His overall process really was not. Two runs in five and a third innings, you'll take that. But there were some hard-hit balls by the Braves off Ross. He ultimately had just three strikeouts, gave up five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles, issued two walks, one of which was intentional, threw 54 strikes versus 32 balls on 86 pitches. The homer was a two-out solo homer by Ronald Acuna Jr. on a one-two pitch 
in the top of the fifth. It was interesting. Ross got pulled by Davey Martinez after giving up that one-out soft infield single to Ozzie Albies in the top of the sixth, the play on which Albies advanced a second due to the throwing error by Trey Turner. Davey allowed Ross to face the Braves' top four batters three times each before pulling Ross. And while you could say, well, geez, Ross only gave up a soft infield single to Albies, and you're going to pull Ross even though he's only given up one run at that point in the game, Ross really did not look that great in the game. So, like, the overall output wasn't bad, but if you watch the game, it wasn't that good of an outing for Joe Ross. Still, he's having a pretty good season, and while his overall numbers aren't great because of the one blow-up start that he had, 10 runs all earned in four and the third innings in the 12-5 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park on April 19th, if you look at Ross's other four starts on the season, you're looking at three runs allowed over 22 in the third innings. I mean, if I'd have told you that going into the season with Ross, you'd have taken that, especially off him having not pitched at all in the 2020 season. Game two for the Nats against the Braves, Wednesday night at 7.05. Eric Fetty versus Max Freed. And here we go with Fetty again. I mean, he's looked really good recently. His last four starts, just six runs allowed over 20 and two-thirds innings. That works out to a 2.61 ERA, 24 strikeouts versus eight walks. This has all happened since his first start of the season, which was a disaster. Another one of these Nationals blow-up starts. Fetty got wrecked in a 7-6 loss at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader back on April 7th. Six runs, five earned in one and two-thirds innings. That game was against the Atlanta Braves. So hopefully history does not repeat itself when it comes to Fetty against the Braves on the season. But he's done a nice job overall so far, been one of the real bright spots for the Nationals, along with Joe Ross in this season. And if you care about standings this early in the season, I personally don't, but the Nationals are second in the National League East, which continues to underwhelm. That's at 12 and 13 or a half game behind the first place Philadelphia Phillies, who are at 15 and 15 behind the Nationals, two percentage points behind them are the New York Mets at 11 and 12. So still, not a single team with a winning record in the NL East so far this season. Every other division in MLB has at least two teams with winning records. The Orioles do not have a winning record. On Tuesday night, did have a chance to get to 500, but did not. Fell to 14 and 16, a 5-2 loss at the Seattle Mariners. Game two of a three-game series, a game that ended close to 130 in the morning hour time. So if you're a sicko like me, you're up watching that. If not, more power to you. You probably are better off. Rio Ruiz had a solo homer and a walk. Trey Mancini had three singles, including an RBI single. So he actually now has a team leading 22 RBI Mancini does, even though, as I've pointed out, he's not having a very good offensive season. His slash line isn't that good. 250 batting average, 302 on base percentage, 422 slugging percentage as we speak on this Wednesday. But beyond Ruiz and Mancini, not much happening for the O's offensively on Tuesday night. Brutal game for Austin Hayes, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. The Orioles starting pitcher was Jorge Lopez. By his standards, he did well. One run in four and two-thirds innings. Lopez came into the game with an ERA of 7.48, an ERA plus of 56 over five starts so far this season. But, you know, it was pretty good. Four strikeouts versus three hits, a homer and two singles and two walks on 76 pitches. The problem ended up being the Orioles' bullpen, and it was a Jekyll and Hyde night for the Orioles' bullpen, which overall has been quite good so far this year. But Travis Lakin Sr. and Tanner Scott combined to allow four runs in the bottom of the eighth. Lakins did not retire any of the three batters he faced to begin things, gave up a leadoff single to Sam Haggerty, then issued back-to-back walks to Mitch Hanniger and Ty France. Scott then came in. The first batter he faced, Kyle Seeger, hit an RBI sack fly, and then Scott gave up the big blow. First pitch, three-run homer to Kyle Lewis for a 5-1 
Mariners lead. But I tell you what, the Orioles do have relievers who are killing it so far. This guy, Adam Pletko, one and two-thirds scoreless innings on Tuesday night. His ERA for the season is now one, two earned runs in 18 innings. Paul Fry, another good outing for him for the O's on Tuesday night. Struck out the two batters he faced for the final two outs in the bottom of the seventh, lowering his ERA to 150 and giving him, get this, 19 strikeouts over just 12 innings on the season. I've talked so much about chips to be flipped for the Orioles and who on the team this season can you trade to contenders later in the season to get back some more prospects as you continue the rebuild. And that's what you're rooting for with this bullpen. It's not... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed about these guys necessarily being building blocks for the future, although some of them might be, but it's more so given the fickle nature of relievers of let's see who's doing really well and let's flip them by the MLB trade deadline and get back some more prospects for the rebuild. So maybe the guy like Pletko or Fry, you're able to do something like that. Game three for the Orioles at the Mariners is Wednesday afternoon beginning at 3.40. John Means versus Yusei Kikuchi. Means has been outstanding so far this season. In fact, entering games on Tuesday, John Means was tied for second in the majors in wins above replacement per baseball reference for pitchers at 1.7, was tied with Garrett Cole of the Yankees. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast 
at yahoo.com. Busy night on Wednesday night in DC sports. We have the Capitals at the New York Rangers, the Wizards at the Milwaukee Bucks, the Nationals home to the Atlanta Braves, in addition to Orioles at the Seattle Mariners on Wednesday afternoon. So we'll have a lot to talk about on Thursday's podcast, including, of course, much more on the Washington football team. We still have to do the quarterback conversation. Washington not drafting a quarterback in the 2021 draft and what that tells us. We'll do that either on Thursday's show or Friday's show. I've got some more guests for you talking Washington football team draft as well. Have a great rest of your Cinco de Mayo. I'll talk to you on Seis de Mayo. And the-